This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 86. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 86 you're listening to. Brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. Welcome again. Ah, cup of coffee close at hand. I tell you, I tried this, uh, tried doing the monologue last night. I had uh, got home late. Uh, I actually had flown on a plane all day, got home, went to dinner, went to a show, and thought, well, I'll just, I'll just head on into my studio and uh, record the podcast. Well, that was a foolish idea because my voice at 12 a.m. does not sound like my voice at 7 a.m., I'll tell you that. So uh, <laughs> I did it and took a listen to it and thought, uh, I'll go to bed and I'll try it again in the morning. So here I am. It is morning time. Happy to be back in California after my travels. Uh, was down visiting friends and family in uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico which is uh, in the southwestern part of the United States for our friends outside of the United States. So if you take out a map and you're looking at it, uh, you'll see the tip of Texas, which is where El Paso, Texas is located, right by the Mexican border and right by Juarez, Mexico. And if you go up a bit into New Mexico, you've got Las Cruces right there. That's right. And then if you go even further up, just to help you get your bearings, uh, further up about uh, four hours or so north. Yeah, that's right. Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then, of course, up above that, Santa Fe, New Mexico. So that's kind of the layout there. I know Las Cruces is uh, not a well-known place, but it's the uh, second largest city in the state of New Mexico. Beautiful, beautiful place in terms of uh, open skies and mountains. and Oh, yeah, lovely place. And uh, anyways, was down there visiting family and friends. And if you recall some time ago, I interviewed my friend David Wheeler, who's a recording engineer down there. He's got a studio, 603 Studios, or Studio 603. That was about episode, I'm taking a guess now, I think it's five or six. So if you haven't heard that, head back, listen to uh, me chat with my buddy David. Anyhow, so uh, back in New Mexico, talking to our next guest, and I'm talking about Mr. Emmett Brooks. And uh, his went over to his studio, which is Emmett Brooks Recording or Goldust Studios, depending on uh, how you know the studio, if you know Emmett. Let me give you some background here. When I was growing up, there weren't any studios that I knew of except this one studio, and that was Emmett's studio. So the studio has been around, been around since 1975. That's when Emmett built it. He has a history that goes back a lot further than that, which you'll hear in the interview. But uh, yeah, 1975. So I went down there and uh, sent Emmett an email and giving you a little more background, I had actually done an interview, which was intended to go into tape op, uh, which actually has never come out. There's honestly, there's a pretty big backlog of interviews that Larry and uh, John at tape op have sitting on their desk. So as far as I know, they could probably stop interviewing people now and keep uh, the load of interviews coming for years to come. So the interview has not made it out uh, in publication yet. So I decided that I would uh, get Emmett on the show because he's just a fantastic guy. He's been around for years and just his his story is quite cool in the context of today's uh, audio professional, I think. So I uh, sent him an email and I said, hey, Emmett, I know that we already did this one interview for Tape Op a few years ago. And anyhow, uh, are you up for another interview? If not, no worries. And uh, I would just love to stop by and see you and see the studio again. And he graciously and very rapidly returned my email and said, absolutely, come on down. We'll catch up on all things audio. So I went down. You know, I, I don't know how to explain it. You know, most of the folks we talked to on the show, I'd say <clears throat> with the exception of um, uh, Al Schmidt, are, you know, have about 15 to 20 years experience. Emmett and Al have way more experienced than everybody else, which is always fascinating to me to talk to somebody who's just been at it through seeing the different technologies develop and recording over the years. And, and so, uh, it was a true honor to sit down with Emmett once again and, uh, ask him some more questions. So that's what we have coming up here. Before we get to Emmett's interview, I do want to tell you that, uh, I have a small batch of working class audio hats that came in 
And when I say small, I mean, there's like, literally there's like 24. <laughs> so as soon as we get the uh, Facebook store uh, selling the hats and uh, eventually some other products as well, but we're going to get the Facebook store up and uh, we just need to figure out what we can uh, do on the shipping because, you know, we want to ship it to you quickly and uh, inexpensively. And so we're trying to come up with a uh, price that really works for both uh, our friends in the United States and, of course, outside the United States. And if you don't get a chance, if you go on there and you try to buy a hat and they've sold out, never fear. We are going to order more. We just wanted to uh, see what the new logo looked like on a new batch of hats and when I say new logo, it's because we tried to get the logo right the first time and it, I didn't quite like it. I uh, said, well, let's try again and let's let's get it right. So now we have some excellent hats and I can't wait to put them up there for you. So there it is. Back in California from New Mexico and uh, happy to bring you this interview. So without further ado, let's get into it here. Emmett Brooks here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast and Thanks for meeting up with me again. Now, you and I, we got together several years ago now, because I don't, I don't remember when that was, but it was a long time ago. Oh, I think it must have been five or six years ago or yeah, something, something like that, that. that could have been a little more, maybe nine or ten. A little bit of background, kind of starting now and working our way backwards, we're at, uh, officially, do you call the studio Gold Dust Records or Studios? Well, I've uh, originally, when I first did the studio thing, well, I had I had the Goldust record label, and we started that in like 1959. So that was going until I built the first studio at my house back in uh, 1965. So it was Goldust, and all the everybody that recorded and everything, and uh, they all called it Goldust. Okay. And when I built this one, I decided to stick my name in there because otherwise I'm kind of an un- anonymous Goldust guy. Right. So I called it Emmett Brooks Recording Studio, but everybody still called it Goldust. Right now, it's uh, it's still known by both names. Some call it uh, Goldust, and and you know when when somebody does a CD or puts it out and all, if I do all the mixing and mastering and all that kind of thing, and they want to know how to what to put on the uh, liner notes. I usually tell them at you know Goldust Studios, and my name is engineer instead of uh, repeating my name so many times. <laughs> as far as I know, even to this day in 2016. I don't know of another studio, maybe with the exception of Sonic Ranch, which I think is in El Paso, close to El Paso. I don't think there's another studio like this, of this size and build. I, well, I've never they had, known there to be one. Uh, you know, the, the Sonic Ranch guys, I I met him once. He sent me a tape and somehow, or a dat, and somehow or another, the tracks, the two tracks were, they were out of phase or something. Anyway, I called him up, and he came up, and uh, I showed it to him and all. Anyway, it was just a mix-up uh, somewhere. But I've never been down there, but uh, I've looked at his website and all, and he's he's got a lot of a lot of stuff and uh, pulls people in from uh, far and wide, I guess. Uh, but he's, he's kind of set up for the stay-a-week-and-record type of thing or, mm. you know, the live-in... Uh, because he's like uh, he's like thirty forty miles on the other side of El Paso, down in the valley. Yeah, uh, close to the border, right? Tornillo, yeah, right to throw a rock across the border almost. Huh. So anyway, his uh, his family has a big pecan orchard down there. I kind of feel like that, you know, if he if he hits a rough spot in the recording world, he's still got some pecans. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I if it uh, it's just a little. I just never have gone down there to bird dog it. I should. But anyway, he's got a lot of good pictures and all on his website. Then here recently, there's a studio in El Paso that uh, Buddy Winston bought. They opened it up, oh, let's see, back in the, probably in the 80s or 90s somewhere, and then closed it down. Somebody else rented it for a while. He just got through... He bought the building and 
he's been refurbishing a bunch of stuff and hired two or three people. I hope I wish him well, but uh, he's got a lot invested for the market as it is now. The building we're in now, uh, you modeled that after uh, RCA Studios. Well, I you is know right? I I saw. Uh, Norman Petty Studio in Clovis. Uh, I recorded a record there in in uh, 1959, and he had the polycylindrical diffusers on the walls, mm-hmm. and so I kind of got the idea from that. But uh, the whole thing, uh, RCA, uh, Victor Studios in Hollywood and uh, New York and all they they had that type of a of a wall. And they even had some of them kind of like in the ceiling. But what it does, it scatters the sound. Instead of it hitting a flat surface and bouncing back, it hits this curved surface and spreads. Mm-hmm. So you get the reflections, but you don't get a, a sharp echo back. And the, the whole deal is you don't want two parallel walls bouncing back between each other. So if you've got absorbent, uh, material on one wall and uh, the diffusing thing is is uh, I think a real good idea and over the years they've built uh, they've built others that you've seen pictures where in the back of a control room they'll have looks like different sizes of blocks of wood uh, all different shapes and everything well it's the same type of an idea there's not one flat surface that's bouncing back it's a very uh, and like the like the foam in the behind you, it's uh, it's the same type of thing, and those there's more surface area to absorb than if it was just flat. And so th- those those studios were kind of an inspiration in the, the... yeah yeah and you know it uh, if it worked if it worked for Norman Petty I figured it was good enough <laughs> for me. <laughs> for listeners that don't know who Norman Petty was, um, tell me a bit about like what he's known for. He had a lot of of hit records with Buddy Holly in the Crickets back in the in the sixties and uh, late fifties. Buddy Holly was killed in a plane crash about uh, maybe in fifty nine, early fifty nine, or somewhere in there. Anyway, they recorded much of that uh, his material, and he was from Lubbock, which is close to about a hundred miles from Clovis. Then he recorded uh, Buddy Knox and the Rhythm Orchids and uh, a whole bunch of different people. But I remember uh, he actually, he got good radio play locally. It was quite the thing because he would record things and he'd take them, he'd take the tapes to New York, Mm. try to find a label to release the master to. And he was very successful at it. So he was at Brunswick Records and... uh, Oh, probably Dot and uh, Coral Records, several, several big ones. But uh, he would work in Clovis and record things, and then uh, disappear to New York for a while and market the goodies. Hmm. And so after that, after that, uh, that was you know the place to go. So that uh, I was down here. We were going to school down here, and. Uh, had a band called the Aggie Ramblers, and I'd written a song, and one of the, my buddy Nolan Chandler had written a song. So we decided to go to Clovis and and record and put his song on one side and mine on the other. So we brought the guys up there and we we laid down the tracks, and uh, as a result of that, we we had really good luck with the record, and that's where I caught the studio disease, you know. <laughs> it. Yeah, and once thought, you do, it's, this, this it's is, over. <laughs> this is this is something else, and so then uh, I got back, and then I'm comparing that sound to what I was getting with a silver tone recorder and a little uh, cheap microphone, and so it was one of these things that uh, you got to get a better microphone, you got to get a better preamp, you got to get a better recorder, and so then. Uh, Norman wound up selling me a couple of Altec mixers that he had used on uh, Sugar Shack, the record by the Fireballs. Anyhow, that was uh, that was in like '65 or '6, somewhere in there. So, anyway, after that, uh, then I was trying to. I built a 
an underground echo chamber at the studio in Messiah Park. And uh, this is when you had a studio at your house. Yeah. So I built an addition on the onto the house in the backyard, and uh, I had it all drawn out. And at the time, my brother Jake uh, was living with us while he went to school at NMSU. And so anyway, he was working at um, at night in the evenings and stuff. Anyway, I I came home one day and we'd we'd put some stakes out in the ground where where this studio was going to be and where the echo chamber is going to be and all that kind of thing. And, you know, it was still, still up in the air. I'm still dreaming. Anyway, I came home from work one day and my wife said, uh, you need to go out and look in the backyard. And I said, what's happening? She said, just go look. So I go out in the backyard and here's a pile of dirt. Jake's taking a shovel and he's dug about a foot down in the yard where this echo chamber goes. Well, it's got eight feet more to go. <laughs> so I changed clothes and ate, and then I dug until he got off work. And then we dug some more with, with a lantern. <laughs> anyway, it, so he forced me. He forced my hand. Once, once he had destroyed the backyard, <laughs> there's no turning back. I remember you telling <laughs> me a story last time we talked um, that you guys – you dug it out. I think you said you had a hose going down there to give you well, air. Well, this, okay, this, this was, we, we got it built. We got it built and built the framework for it and all that. And we, we pulled up the concrete, the whole concrete truck. Well, they start pouring. Well, he got a little bit too much on one side and the form started buckling. And it, it caved in about three or four inches on, on the, at the bottom on one side. So I shut the concrete off. Anyway, so he had to take that away. And so then we had to let that set up. And then we had to reinforce the, the rest of the forms and all that. And then we finally poured the rest of the walls. Then we had to frame up to pour the ceiling. So it's a solid concrete box under there with a, with about a, or oh, two foot square, hole at the top to get in and out of it with. So we got that set up, and then uh, we were using it. And I felt like that it didn't quite have the reverb time I wanted. And anyway, I was up in Clovis. My folks lived in Portales, so every time I'd go visit my parents. I'd figure out an excuse to go see Norman Petty. And anyway, when I bought some equipment from him, I, we were out in a garage that his dad had had and uh, was next to his studio. And I knew this echo chamber was in the attic of this garage. And so I'm looking up there and I said, how much of that area does that echo chamber take? And I figured, you know, he's going to say, well, let me show it to you. Well, he said, oh, about half of what you see. He, he did not, uh, he didn't share any stuff. Anyway, I was telling him about the, about my chamber and everything. And, uh, yeah, okay. Okay. And he says, well, he says, maybe you need to, to tile the walls or, uh, something. He says, uh, he said, what we did, he said, I, I got some glazed sewer tiles hmm. and put them around in my chamber to break it up. So I got some of those, and I did some of that, and then I decided, well, I would, uh, I would paint the interior of that thing with epoxy. Ah, uh. and epoxy is pretty, pretty, pretty toxic. Stock. So here I am down in this hole, and I got the idea. Okay, I can put on goggles, and breathe through a garden hose, and I can paint for ten minutes and crawl out, and then, uh, you know, come back and do some more. <laughs> So you breathe in through the hose and out through your mouth and you just, you know, you got fresh air. And when your eyes start burning, it's time to go. <laughs> Time's up. So anyway, and so it's still there. I still have the house. And, oh, you do? Oh, yeah. And uh, Wow. So if I, if I ever uh, totally sell this place or something, you know, I can always have my little playhouse there. 
this building that we're in now, at what point did you uh, acquire this or did you build it from scratch? I built it from scratch. Okay. Yeah. Well, what happened, uh, this was like in, uh, oh, 73, four, somewhere like that. I got to getting bigger bands. Guys were coming in with, uh, well, instead of little four or five piece groups, I hear I was getting guys coming in with horn sections and they wanted a, a girl's chorus and stuff. So it was more, more of the, uh, bigger sounding rock and roll, uh, Neil Diamond type stuff and things, you know, anyway, I needed more space. That's all there was to it. Plus I was in a residential area and my boys were, uh, Oh, the, at, you know, at that time, like uh, four and seven or something, you know. So they need to, they can't stay up till one o'clock in the morning listening to pop out in the studio. And I didn't want to keep the neighbors awake, so it, it, it forced my hand. You know, I had to do something. Because, uh, you know, we, we would record mostly at night, and uh, so I was, I usually tried to shut down by 10 o'clock to keep the, and you know, some of the neighbors, I would apologize for it. And they said, Oh, that's okay. I said we, we could hear the, we could hear the boom, 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 <laughs> the bass and stuff. But anyway, then I had a friend that was a real estate guy and I spotted this piece of ground next door was cable television in the, in the building that's still over there right mm -hmm. now. So I got the idea that, Hey, you know, Maybe I could work with them a little bit if I, so I, I told this real estate guy that uh, I found this piece of ground that was next to the cable TV and it was a cotton field, and I was wanting to know if they, who owned it. So anyway, he dug around and he found out who owned it. And as a retired farmer that uh, he'd moved to Oklahoma, so he said, "Well, I'll find out about it." So I told him, you know, I was interested in a hundred feet or so. So he checks it out and the guy says no he said he wouldn't be interested in selling a little piece of it but he says that the whole thing is like a couple of acres here all the way around the corner and he said that he would be interested in selling that whole thing but not just a piece of it hmm. so i thought oh good grief you know this is way out of sight and uh, anyway he says well he says uh make an offer all he can do is turn it down so I went home and told my wife that I needed to, I needed to put up some deposit money for a piece of ground that I was looking at, and uh, she thought I was nuts. So anyway, we did, and uh, so snail mail went to Oklahoma and back, and he wrote back and said, well, he couldn't afford, he couldn't see selling it at that price, but he says if your client will go up uh, another five thousand dollars or so, he would reconsider which meant, you know, I would, I would take it. So I did. So he gave me like uh, three months to get the funds together because he wanted all, all the money at one time. So I'm in a scramble here to, to rake up the money. <laughs> anyway, so we, we took out a second mortgage, or actually we'd had the house paid for it, and we, we borrowed money on it, and I borrowed some from my folks, and and my brother was going to buy one of the lots from me and a, a fiddle player that was recording with me. He was going to take another lot down at the end. And so all of this stuff had to come come together, you know, by middle of January. Well, about Christmas or new, well, before Christmas, we were playing a dance out at the Las Cruces Country Club. And I had I had made an application for a loan from a bank here. And... Uh, so I waited for two or three weeks and nothing came through. And I called him one day and he said, well, they, the board met and they figured that all the things I was involved in, that I wouldn't have time to, to do that. And I got to thinking, you know what? They want to steal my deal. So anyway, so I'm, I'm about that time, I'm, I've got a lump coming up in my throat here. And I thought, God grief, you know. Anyway, went to the doctor and he sent me to a specialist in El Paso. And the specialist guy says, uh, what's bothering you? And I said, oh, you know, I, I explained the deal. And he said, that'll do it. 
He said, I see several of these. Uh, uh, says, you guys get to stretching out and everything. And uh, he said, you're worried about it. And he said, that, he said, you've heard of a lump in your throat. He said, that's what it is. So he said, I can give you some medication. And, uh, but he says, you need to get rid of the, the things that are bothering you, you know. Anyway, so he did, and the, the, the knot went away and all. And then uh, right before Christmas, right after that, we're playing a dance at the Las Cruces Country Club. Well, we took an intermission, and I spot a banker that I had dealt with for years. He had left and gone to Wyoming. So I cornered him during intermission, and, and I said, Leon, where in the heck are you when I need you? And he says, well, hey, good to see you. What? What's up? And I told him that I found a piece of property and I, I had everything together except the last ten thousand dollars. And I said I, uh, I told him about the bank uh, saying that I was too busy for that. He says, "Oh," yeah. he said, "I may be able to help you." And I said, "How's that?" And he says, "I'm starting to work at a new bank in town called Citizens Bank." And I said, "When you do that?" And he says, first of January." And I said, "How?" When's your first open day? <laughs> and he said, "Now nah. he said, just just make a list of, make a list of uh, enough equipment to, <clears throat> to back it up, and uh, come down and we'll we'll do it." So the first Monday morning that that, that they're open, I'm down there and uh, we visit a while, and twenty thirty minutes later I walk out with my my check and boom. So then I I bought the whole. The whole piece of ground. The whole piece of land. And, and you got so, it before the, the other bank potentially got the deal. They saw the uh, potential of it. And I, I always thought that, uh, that they were, if they could keep me from doing it, that it was a good deal. And so anyway, that was my end of uh, association with that bank. But then uh, after that, I wound up selling the lots off and uh i wound up with enough from selling the lots to get my lot free and clear plus enough to build probably half the studio so that was that was the start of uh getting me out of the house <laughs> <laughs> so then it, then i you know after i did that then i spent the next i spent the next uh probably year planning and designing and measuring and going to LA and uh, equipment supplier out there he he uh, put me with one of his guys to take me around to show me a bunch of different studios to get ideas so anyway that was uh, I got a lot of ideas out there and the other ideas that I had and and then I took my plans out to them and uh, they made some suggestions to that. So anyway, uh, then once I got a contractor, they built the shell. Then I had an electrician and a plumber. And after that, I did all the interior. So it took me about a year from the time the contractor moved out. It was a little over a year. Did you have any issues with permits with the city of Las Cruces? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Were they hesitant? Mm no, no, not really. Everything had to, everything had to be blessed by a, a registered engineer type. Okay. So anyway, there was a, a guy at the college that uh, brought my stuff to, and he designed the foundation and designed the the space above the dual window here. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he had all that figured out, and so then I. I brought that to the city, and they blessed all that, so they gave me the permit. And then called in, I got a contractor, and they came in, and uh, the fellow that did, this, did the layout for the foundation, he looks at the plans, and he's driving stakes and stuff, and he said, what the heck is this? He says, he said, what's this two-foot-by-two-foot foundation business? And I said, well, that's what the engineer came up with. And he said, do you, have a, do you have any soil samples or anything on this? And so anyway, he said, I'd like to see what, what, the, what the soil is. How, how far is it down to sand? Mm -hmm. So anyway, we did that. And uh, then he says, no, he says, what, what you need to do is to drill 
footholds down to sand. And he says, there's a guy here in town that's got a drilling machine. And he says he drills down to sand and then he, he bells out the bottom of it. So when you pour concrete into that hole with rebar and everything down at the bottom, it's sitting on a, on a thing and it's in sand and sand is not going to compress because we're sitting on adobe. Oh. He says you do that two-foot square foundation on that adobe and the thing's going to float. You're going to get cracks and it, it's, it's going to shift. So anyway, I went back, to, uh, did that, went back to the city and gave them that idea. And they said, oh, that, that'll be superior to the other. And they said, uh, you can go two stories if you want to on that. And it was no more concrete, same amount of concrete. So we did that. So it's under, under all the bearing walls and the middle wall and all. Every six feet is this pier. It goes down to sand, and it's about 8 to 10 feet down. Wow. So there's no cracks, and this thing has been here since 75. So anyway, then once I got that done, then the bricklayers came in, and they're doing their thing, and they see this uh, wood box beam that's supposed to go above this window. Mm -hmm. What the heck is this? Well, that's what the engineer said I needed no, nah, says what do, he says what we do here with that. He said we take uh, we take these cement blocks that are like a U, and we build up and we block all this off and support it. Then we put these U-shaped blocks along the top. We put rebar in this U-shape, and we tie all that together, and then we pour that with concrete. And he says that is superior to any of this other stuff you're talking about. Oh, I didn't know about that. Huh. Went back to the city. Oh, yeah, that's that's great. That's super. Yeah, that'll <laughs> be fine. So, you know, uh, there were some ideas that these other guys came up with that weren't registered engineers, but they were practical day in, day in and day out. Cinder block men, foundation men, builders that do it all the time. Yeah. And so they know... You know, they've, they've built it all. Anyway, once I got that done, and then I, I started building the inside of it. You know, I built, a, I built some stuff and looked at it and tore it up and started over and measure. And I probably spent as much time staring at the walls and trying to figure out what I wanted to do because I didn't have all the details planned out, you know. Mm. And as far as the interior went, all the city had was their, just the drawings and and they, they didn't care once once they blessed the main thing. So anyway, it all came together. So the, you have been here since 1975 in this space. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I've made, I've made modifications in, in it. Uh, actually, the, you know, the, the ceiling of this room is, is different. Uh, the back wall is, is different. Panels up there on the ceiling are, are different. I added that later, but... Uh, it was just, just modifications that uh, made it sound better. Oh, anyway, I still have the, that two-track Ampex tape recorder. I, I bought that in 65 when I built the studio at the house. So that one was my go-to machine until I got a four-track. And then I got an eight-track. And then I got a 16-track. And then I got a 24-track. And then I got a computer with two <coughs> tracks. And then a computer... Anyway, so it took a while. Uh, we started mixing masters to uh, two-track PCM F1 Sony. I remember it. that. And that uh, we did a lot of mastering to that and took it to Phoenix, and they would cut the vinyl master from that uh, as a date master. Then finally, the digital stuff got up to where you could do like four tracks. Well... None of it was really ready for prime time, and I I kept doing analog with Dolby noise reduction and everything, and and it wasn't an actually it wasn't until like uh, 2000, 2000 I got to where I could do eight tracks digital, still wasn't ready for prime time, so it was probably two thousand five, so I'd say within the last ten years that things started happening. You know, the drives had to get fast enough. The computers had to get fast enough. The converters have, had to get good enough. 
on and on and on. Everything was just pushing the the hardware to the max. And I wanted I wanted to be able to do everything digital that I did with analog, because if it if if you couldn't give me the same number of tracks or more, it isn't worth it. There's no point. No point. Yeah. But for a while, I even set up to where I recorded. Once I got to where I could record like 16 or or more tracks digital, for a while I had it set up to where I could actually feed the analog tape machine and the computer at the same time. So I recorded everything in both formats for quite a while. And uh, then I would play with the results by myself later, comparing the comparing the sound of the two and making sure that uh, the digital was as good as it said it was. And it finally, it finally passed muster. And I, once the tape got very expensive and the hard drives got less expensive and <laughs> it got to where, you know, do I, do I want to sell a client uh, two rolls of tape or, or bill him for four more hours of recording time? Because the tape was just a pass-through deal. Yeah. You're not really going to make much on no. that, if any. No. So anyway, at, uh, then once the, once the computer uh, digital stuff got to the point to where you could do the EQ, you could do this and that, and just kept getting better and better, and finally there, uh, there's no turning back. I remember reaching that point of, of the computer world and thinking, I'm going to just stay here. And, and do this well it, it's it's at a, at a point to where the the maintenance on the analog equipment especially a tape recorder or an analog console a big one uh with a bunch of relays and uh on and on uh turning them on turning them off uh i know went to nashville one time and these guys uh you know that console is sitting there burning and all the equipment is running and they somehow had the idea you never turn it off. Well, I can imagine the electric bill, the air conditioner trying to keep the place cool, plus feeding all this stuff burning all the time. And it was like, you know, if you turn them off and turn them on, there's a shock to the, to the electronics and, Da, 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 da. So anyway, I never bought into that because I couldn't see paying that <laughs> of electric bill if I didn't have any business. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you're enjoying my interview here with Emmett Brooks here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. It's time to take a sponsor break, though, with our friends over at Audio-Technica. do want to make sure and give them a congratulations, a hearty congratulations, because if you go to headphonescompare.com, uh, these folks took 50 headphone brands ranked from best to worst. And this was based on more than 500,000 customer reviews and uh, made a nice little chart to show us what customers thought. And Audio-Technica, no surprise here, came out on top, not just on top, but number one. Uh, this is for the uh, ATH-M50X headphones. And as far as headphone brands, I mean, we're talking, you know, many of the well-known brands in the world of pro audio but also uh, well-known brands in the world of consumer audio and basically did a comparison, did a chart and uh, yeah, number one. So that's a super cool thing and uh, no big surprise to me. You know, I talk about the M40 X's, which I use on the show all the time. Use the M50 X's when I go over to uh, Sharkbite Studios. They have a big batch of them there. So we use them when we're tracking. So uh, yeah. Audio Technica doing it up with the headphones. And, you know, if you haven't been over to their website, just a, uh, another reminder, which I love to guide you over there, head on over to uh, audio-technica.com and have a look at uh, their wide range of headphones, uh, microphones, of course, and uh, turntables. So there it is. Congratulations to our friends over at Audio Technica. Well, that's it. Let's get back to it with Mr. Emmett Brooks here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I remember uh, you did have an analog console at one point. At what point did you decide to switch to, you got a couple of Yamaha O2Rs here. Right. And what point did you switch over? I switched over, well, I when the O2R came out, 
I think that must have been around, oh, I can't remember, any, anyhow. Uh, they were like $10,000. They had so much rave reviews and all that kind of thing that uh, I figured, well, you know, I need one of those because I was, I was having trouble with, uh, oh, you'd pull a, a big module out and you track down a little problem and maybe it was a relay or some some little thing that uh, wasn't working. Because every, every time you did a switch and everything, you could hear all these relays go, you know, and there's like 32 relays, you know. <laughs> and if one of them doesn't work, uh, then you got to replace it. So anyway, I bought one of those consoles, the O2Rs, and I set it up in the other room. So I was running that on small sessions and the analog on the big session with the MCI board. And then finally, I got the idea that, uh, you know, if I had two of these uh, guys and I figured out how that I could run, hook them up to where I didn't have any latency because I was going in with one console, playing back through the other one and all that. And uh, so then I, the way I had it set up, I, I can run 32 tracks of, of digital. Hmm. So anyway, that uh, that was probably oh 2008 or nine something somewhere in there when when I made the switch over and pulled the cards, pulled all the modules out of this and rigged it up to where I dropped these two in in here and uh, but I still have the I still have the patch bay yeah and you know different uh, used equipment dealers and all were trying to talk me out of the console, but it wasn't, wouldn't bring enough to do another patch bay. And you, you take a patch bay with that, with that many plug-ins and all the wires that go to it and all the wiring that goes to all the equipment, all the racks in both rooms and the, the big room and all that, you're talking some heavy-duty reconstruction. And so the console was worth more to me uh, uh, just the patch bay and the framework and everything. What kind of console was it? In the MCI 500 series. Okay. And you still have your JH24 over there and uh, JH10? Yeah. Uh -huh. Two track? Right. Yeah, and all that stuff still works. Yeah, I was going to ask it. Do you, uh, you seem to have a lot of gear that I, like you talk about this Ampex that you got in the 60s. Right. And I mean, it looks better than anything I've seen in ages in terms of. Well, it's never been, it's, it's never been anywhere. Yeah. It, it, it hasn't traveled. It hasn't been bullied by a whole bunch of different people. You know, it's been taken care of here about a year and a half or two ago, I decided to fire it up. And sometimes if I, like, if I want to get a, a tube sound or something, sometimes I'll, I'll, there's mic preamps in those guys. So I, I'll run a, a, a ribbon microphone into that and just use it as a preamp ah. to get that sound. Anyway, I turned that, uh, I turned the machine on one day and threaded it up and mashed play. And gosh, the, the little rubber roller guy was rotten. Oh yeah. It, it, had, it was just falling apart. So, I dug and dug on the internet, and I finally found a guy up in West or up in uh, Michigan or Wisconsin or Minnesota. One, anyway, uh, it was called I uh, uh, can't think of the guy's first name. Anyway, so and so's rubber rollers, ah. and he rebuilt. He, he, you send him your old roller, and tell him what machine it's off of, and all that kind of thing, and he will he'll build you a new one. He'll put new rubber on it. So, and he starts with raw rubber. And he says the reason those things fell apart, he says they weren't cured properly. So he had it all figured out. So anyway, did that, put it back together, turned that dude on, and I, I put a tape on it here a week and a half ago and played back some stuff from the 60s, just as sweet as it can be. Amazing. But, you know, I've, I've kept all the manuals and everything, and so uh, that thing will still spec out uh, 
just like it's supposed to. Like it did when you bought it. Yeah. To clarify, um, so so the listeners know, you did have a job throughout the years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I worked for New Mexico State. I worked for New Mexico Department of Ag, which is a part of New Mexico State University. When you say ag, you mean agriculture? Is yes. that what you mean? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. And mainly, mainly that, that department was put in when it's, they formed it uh, before, oh, let's see, I think probably in the 50s, early 50s sometime, or maybe late 40s. Anyway, there used to be state chemist laboratory, used to be the state dairy uh, man, used to be the state weights and measures guys, the feed, seed, and fertilizer guys, the uh, something else's. Anyway, all these were separate little entities. They pulled it all together under the New Mexico Department of Agriculture and hired a director to be the director of all of these things, you know, put them all together. Well, then, uh, instead of it being a political thing uh, under the state government, it uh, it was formed, and there's like only one or two other states that are like this, but it's part of New Mexico State University. So it comes from the governor to the uh, director of the, and he's under the Board of Regents of University. Interesting. So we were always sheltered from political upheavals every time you got a new governor. Right. So your budgets remain somewhat consistent. Everything remain, and and actually, you know, we were considered faculty and staff of uh, NMSU. So uh-huh. we were treated the same way as as uh, you know professors or whatever. So our retirement was the same. Our health insurance was the same. We're all part of the university. So actually that, uh, I worked from 1961 when I started with them until uh, 86. So I put in my time with that and uh, retired early and already had this going from day one. Had the studio running and... Yeah, and it was already, I already had this, uh, well, by the time I... By the time I retired in 86, I had paid for the studio. Oh, wow. So then I got to looking at, at how, much I, how much I took home versus how much I could get on the retirement. And the difference, if I couldn't, do the, if I couldn't make up for that doing the studio, something's wrong. So anyway, that, uh, so I just uh, decided that uh, I had never looked back. And you're you're in your seventies now, is that what you, you said? Somewhere in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It. Uh, no, it's. Uh, I kept at it for a long time. And you know, once you get in it, it's just a, a labor a labor of love. Well, and I mean, my health has been good basically, and uh, my hearing has stuck with me, and uh, my enthusiasm for it has stayed with me, and I've got an understanding wife. Yeah. That's important. What What's your view of the, the the music market in the in the southwest and how's that fared over the years and what it what like the clientele you've had and uh well there aren't there's um there's not the number of four and five piece bands around that there used to be it seems like uh well i, I played in a band from from uh 1957 till 75 when i was building this I, I finally had to quit playing because i was i was working and building this and doing the studio at the house and yeah it's too much yeah yeah so i i told the guys that uh you know i think uh new year's eve 75 was my last last job so anyway after that uh i could concentrate because i i had spent like four months working on this thing and I was I wasn't making the progress I needed to make and uh, you know I had too too much tied up to spend all that the whole weekend driving around to Roswell or Albuquerque or whatever and you know you you may play for four hours and and drive for eight (laughs) (laughs) did studio life appeal to you more I was tired of playing I I was just uh, 
you know, it's a young guy's game. Uh, it's work. Yeah, it is. It's it's work, and especially you know, we never could book for enough to to make it worthwhile to stay in a motel and and eat and all this kind of stuff. Uh, we didn't have riders like the big boys, you know. Yeah. So anyway, you you had to go there and you had to turn around and come back. And you go to Roswell. There's four hours over and four hours back at least. And uh, or Carlsbad, or you know, we played we played in you know Southern Colorado, uh, Eastern Arizona, West Texas, most all of New Mexico, and we did it for like seventeen seventeen and a half or eighteen years. And it was it was fun. I wouldn't trade it. But uh, after a while, we kind of we kind of ran into a situation where I was going to have to look for a couple of guys and they weren't around and if you can't get the musicians you need uh yeah. you, you you can't fake it <laughs> you can't fake it you know and i don't play steel guitar and i don't play fiddle what what's and, your main instrument uh i played guitar for a long time and then uh, i switched to bass about the last 10 years uh we wound up with three guitar players and i probably was not the the best one of the bunch. One of them said, I played bass licks on the guitar half the time anyway. Why didn't I get a bass? So I did. And once I once I found out I could chew gum and walk at the same time, <laughs> it, it was a lot less practice playing bass than would be playing lead guitar. How have you found the recording business in this location the, since, you know, since you've had the studio? When I first started out, I was about the only game in the area. Oh, from the seventies, probably from you know, from well, from sixty-five to seventy, uh, it was going strong at the house. And finally, when I built this, probably the first ten years was we were pretty dang busy. And once I retired, then I could devote full time to it. And uh, but since about oh, I'd say probably two thousand five or so, or you know, the last the last ten years. Have have been a a drastic cutback in the number of of people that uh, that are seeking stardom, you might say, you know, writing songs and want to hear themselves. And I kind of blame it all on, uh, well, for a while, you know, everybody had to have a record, and a record was a forty-five. Well, you get a session and you record two songs, get the record pressed, and they take some of the radio station, some of the jukebox guys, and and they sell some, and they're happy. Then it got to where you needed an album. So then you needed 10 or 12 songs, and then you needed artwork, and you needed this and that. Well, that was great. We did a bunch of that. And then cassettes came along, or eight tracks and cassettes. Well, then it got to where you could uh, you could put the stuff out just on a cassette. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to go to the expense of pressing a 1,000 albums. And you could sell the cassettes to your fans, and so that that went along, and then CDs came along, and so then then people needed CDs, and I guess within the last three or four years, even CDs have kind of lost favor, and you can find just about anything you want online for nothing. So the market for individual bands i think the reason that they're not recording as much and not putting out cds and stuff because you put it out on cd you've basically given it to the world it's digital they can copy it one person can stick it in his computer it rips it in less time and it takes to play one song and he's got it and then they trade and swap around and they swap online and it's killed it's killed the golden goose hmm so I found out now that uh, it's more it's more people that are, uh, you know, they're proud of what they do and they want to put it out. And it's kind of a, it's kind of one of these things that separates, it separates a group that has some recordings that they can say, this is us, here's what we do. Uh, and whoever's going to hire them says, yeah, these guys are real. They must, you know, they listen to the stuff. Yeah, we this is fine. We'll hire you. So they play and they may sell a few CDs and all. But uh, to me, it's become more of a of an advertising thing. You need it to get the jobs, but you're not going to make 
the money off of it. You know, you, you're not going to sell a thousand copies in yeah. short order. And I, I look at it like, uh, you know, I always try to find out from a band, how many different places do you play? How many jobs you play a year? Where do you play? Uh, how far do you range? You know, well, if you're, if you're playing the X club in here in El Paso and, and uh, maybe something in Alamogordo, or maybe just Las Cruces, and you're in the same place every night or every weekend, and you have a crowd of 200 people, and it's roughly the same 200 people, you're good for maybe 200 copies of what you record. Yeah. Another philosophy I have is all these towns of the similar size as Las Cruces or a duplicate, if you can sell 500 here, if you're well-known enough and you get yourself into the other town, you can do it there. So you've got to get out there and spread yourself around. Yeah. And all the time we played, I we made it a habit of, we never played in the same town more than once a month hmm. so that we didn't wear ourselves thin with the crowd. And by the time we came back, they were ready for us. So in addition to bands, do you end up recording any books on tape or no books on tape? I've done, uh, well, I've done some of that kind of read stuff, but, uh, I haven't gotten into that. Uh, to me, I can't stay awake that long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I recorded a lady one time she came in and <laughs> she was a hypnotist. Anyway, she said, I, I, I need to warn you. She says, don't, don't really get into what I'm saying. Don't pay too much attention because I might put you under. I might hypnotize Yeah. So anyway, I listened to her for a little while, and then I just uh, turned her off and watched the meter jump up and down. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I did find myself kind of, whoa, she could do it. Wow. Then I've done uh, advertising jingles and... Uh, uh, commercials for politicians and businesses and all that kind of thing. And, uh, but then when you get into that, you're, you're in competition with the radio station who will do it for nothing because they get their money by how many times they spend it on the air. And if they will record it for nothing and get the message across and make the client happy, why do they want to book studio time or hire a talent to come in and do it? When the disc jockey, he does it all the time. But when I, had, when I had a couple of advertising guys that I worked with who are both gone now, but they kept me busy with things because they would go out and sell the fact that they recorded in a professional studio and our stuff sounded different than what the radio station would, would put out because their stuff starts all sounding alike after a while unless it's something brought in from a national chain deal or something. Anyway, you just kind of do what you do and hope for the best. Do you have an overarching economic philosophy of how this should be done? Well, not really. I, I, I went, well, before I built this one, my wife is from London, Ontario. Then my brother moved to Nashville in the late 70s. So I'd been to California, I'd looked at stuff there, I'd been to Nashville, I'd been to, I went to Toronto one time when we went up to visit her folks and all. And so I decided I'm going to go to Toronto and uh, visit with the uh, head of BMI Canada. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I called up and they said, yeah, you'd be glad to talk with you. And so at the time I was, I was open to, you know, different things. And so I thought, well, see what the business is like in Canada. And uh, did the same thing in Denver. I did it in, anyway, set up the meeting with the guy and uh, the guy's name was Harold Moon. He was a big husky fellow with a big mustache and all that kind of thing and big jovial guy. And so I walk in and uh, so they're real, he's real open arms and everything. And he had this uh, little guy or a smaller guy, you know, sitting over there. And he introduced me, and uh, he was uh, the head of BMI out of New York. And he was up visiting this guy in Canada. So here I've got 
I've got an hour and a half audience with these two heads of the the broadcast music industry in the two countries. <laughs> so holy cow! So anyway, they were they were giving me ideas about uh, uh, what was going on in Canada and everything. And then uh, in Nashville, I I talked with uh, another big publisher and or studio guy. No, I know who it was. It was Owen Bradley in, in uh, Nashville. They had Bradley Barnes Studios, and he was one of the founders or the, the big guys in Nashville for many years. And anyway, he said, well, do you have a lot of money? And I said, no. And he said, well, he said, if you don't have enough money to come in and show up the guys that are already here, forget it. He says, they'll eat your lunch. And he said, there's really... Uh, he said, how many people are in the area where you are? And I told him, well, it'd be figuring El Paso and Cruces, southern New Mexico. I could I could pull from a million people uh, population. And he says, He's, there's, uh, there's guys in Nashville that trade places with you. He says, his advice was go go back, build your, build your studio, and start recording. And that's what I did. And you you diversified a lot too because you did have this record label. Oh yeah, well the the record label thing was uh, we started it to put out our own stuff. Okay. And then once I got the studio going, and then I would record somebody. Well, what are they going to do with it? Uh, well, I can put it on a label. So that helped a lot because a lot of the smaller bands and stuff during the '60s. A lot of little rock groups and all that kind of thing, uh, they would they would feel really good to be on the label, and so the Goldust label was being scattered around a thousand copies here, a thousand copies there, so that was a draw. Where I didn't really, I wasn't actually producing the stuff. I was giving them all the help I could, but I had to get paid something for doing it. Yeah. And then, so they bought the records, and then they're, it's theirs to sell, and whatever they got out of them, it was theirs. And what I had was just the, uh, a lot of times I'd have the publishing on the songs, and it was on my label. And, and one time, one time a guy from El Magordo recorded a, a record, I put it out on our label. Well, the thing took off, and distributor in El Paso, uh, is sold out, he calls up, and he needs some more of that record. And I said, well, you know, that's not really my deal. It belongs to the guy that recorded it. And I said, uh, he doesn't want to repress it. Oh. Well, what the heck is, what kind of a deal is this? You know, I've got, I need, you know, I've, you've got this thing going. And so that kind of, that kind of taught me a lesson, you know, yeah, I need to have some way of, keeping people happy in case this thing starts to go yeah what see here i am you know and i don't want to be in the middle of something it it uh, shines a bad light on me makes sense so anyway then finally uh everybody figured out that they could uh that they could start their own record label and then they found out that they could publish their own stuff and they found out they didn't have to have a publisher and they didn't if they put it out on cassette, they didn't have to have a label. So it's always, uh, they're always trying to figure out how to keep from spending any money with the guy in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that sounds cruel, but it's true. <laughs> well, last question. Um, you have a lot of gear in here, a mixture of, you know, some digital stuff, some analog stuff. Uh do you continue to buy any gear? I don't really buy the only the only gear that I am buying anymore is computer stuff and uh, software. Yeah, I have all I have all of the uh, all the upboard gear that I need. I, you know, you start looking around and uh, like my wife told me one time, I needed to start getting rid of some of this stuff. But I said, well, I know how to use it. And the minute I sell it, somebody's going to come in and need it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to wish the heck I still had it. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's like, you know, they've got computer emulations of a lot of things. 
but uh, if uh, if people walked in here and all I had was a uh, a computer screen and a keyboard and a mouse and everything was running into that, uh, you think it would be impressive? Yeah, I mean, the part of the charm of this place is walking in and seeing a hybrid collection of digital and analog together, and also the space. It's just a, it, yeah. it's a whole and that, this is this is something that uh, this is something that's never gone out of style is the space. You know, when I built it, I built a high ceiling in the other room. I built elbow room here. I go to other studios that that put studio two in in less space than I have in an office. <laughs> or you know, they just uh, I don't know. Uh, there's one in El Paso that uh, actually there's, oh, it's probably maybe eight by 10 or not even that big for the little control room. And then it's about room for maybe two people, a guitar player and, and a microphone, you know. Yeah. But, but that, uh, to me, I like a lot of people like a, you know, they'll record in a super dead room and uh, out there. I don't put a screen around a microphone. I, I back them away a little bit and let the room, let the rooms sound. When when I got your email, I, I was just, I thought I don't really, you know, if he wants to do this interview, I'm I'm excited for that. But I was really excited to just come here and just be in the space because I just I think it's a it's a special place and I'm really happy it's still here. Well, um, it's one of those things that. Uh, you know, you can't do it forever, but uh, what else would I do? I know. <laughs> I, you know, you can only you can only travel so much, and you get to, I get tired of that after about a week. Yeah, <laughs> I'm ready to come home. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I I thought to myself, well, here I am. I'm on vacation, and what am I doing? Going to a studio. Fantastic. I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad you come by. I mean, it's uh, you know, compare notes and everything. I know you're. I could almost interview you and you tell me all your <laughs> stories. <laughs> uh, your stories are more fascinating, though. Thank you so much, Evan. This is great. Oh, I welcome. cannot and, wait uh, to put this out. Like anybody's in the area and wants to come by, uh, they're welcome. Just pick up the phone and call me. If you have, if you're ever in Las or, Cruces, New Mexico, and you need a studio, and call we have a, We have a little website that's not much uh, to it. It's just pictures and stuff, but uh, golddueststudios.com. Very anyway, good. it's been been nice. Well, thank you. There it is, Emmett Brooks on the Working Class Audio podcast. Real treat for me to be able to have that interview appear here on the podcast. So that's it. But we got to say thanks because we're out of time. So we want to, of course, first thank Emmett Brooks for his time. And we want to thank our friends who help out with the show. Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors, GearSluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. And as usual, I want to thank you. I appreciate your time listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at GearSpace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on GearSpace.com. So check that out. <laughs>